0: Sexy, shirtless men in tight pants, cuffs, and collars. The image we have of America's quintessential male dance review is sweaty, sexy, glistening men there to fulfill a woman's fantasy. But behind it all, there was a fully clothed man, hell bent on making millions and willing to do whatever it took to maintain his control. This week's episode is The Chippendales Murders, Part 1
1: Well, Heather, are you ready for what might be the horniest episode we've ever covered? She's already holding it up. Heather, what are you what do you have right there in your hand?
0: In my hand I have the nineteen eighty-three Chippendale's Invitational Calendar for the Ladies of the Eighties. <laughs>
1: well, you know what? I was born in seventy-nine. So I was a child of the eighties, but as a lady of the Ots, i yeah. can still appreciate this calendar although i will say the um stereotypical model of the beautiful man has changed
0: i think a little bit yeah if it's if we're going by decade rhyming then we're the hots of the odd. oh yes i'm like claiming uh but yeah you're right i wonder uh what the lineup of gentlemen would be if it was a 2023 cuz this is the 83 so now we're at 2023 uh, calendar, what's the lineup of, of the folks are in there, because I think all of our tastes have changed a little bit, but Chippendales was very of its time. You know what? They loved big, feathery hairdos. Oh, yeah. Weren't afraid
1: of body hair.
0: Oh, a sprig. A sprinkle, some sprinklage of body hair. Mm-hmm. Uh, loved a Speedo. Speedo height. They were very... Uh, Steve Energy was very particular. Over six foot mm-hmm. was like if you were like five ten, you had to be real good at dancing. <laughs> and I'm like, guess what? We can't tell the difference really between five ten, you know, maybe five eleven and six foot. Like it's one inch. Like, can I really tell the difference? But mm, Banners, you could.
1: Oh, he could. And he was the one calling the shots. Well, if you would uh, like to see my reaction to Heather going through man by man in mm-hmm. the calendar. We recorded that the other day, and yes. I think we can post it to Patreon. They each have taglines akin to yeah. Real Housewife style, <laughs> but not it's nearly funny. as good. And I was tasked with guessing what they would be based on the backgrounds of their photo <laughs> shoot. Some I got pretty close. Others, I, I feel like some I was better, and others, they got me.
0: You know, there were they threw in some loops in there. It, you weren't able to tell. I mean, who who knows if he was in the back of a van or the back of a limousine? It was 1983. We're not able to tell. Kind of,
1: kind of all the same. Yeah. Also, station wagons—you can't even tell because you're like going backwards. Hey, my
0: shagging wagon. <laughs> uh, this has been an interesting one to research because I do love eBay. And so initially when we started talking about it, I was like, I'm going to go on eBay. So I got this calendar and then I stopped myself from buying so much more merch. But that's I don't know if that self-control will hold. Are you going to get those jeans? <laughs> if they have them in my size. I'm jeans getting the with the
1: Chippendale silhouette stitched yeah. on... The back pockets?
0: That's what I want. That's what I'm trying to... You know
1: those are up to your tits.
0: The high oh. rise on those. <laughs> They're probably back in style now is oh, the yeah. irony.
1: Yeah, for sure. Oh, I'm sure you can get a pretty penny selling 80s original Chippendales merch on eBay.
0: Oh, yeah. I mean, this the calendar wasn't uh, egregious. It was like 40 bucks with shipping all in. Uh, and it's well... You know, there's no writing on it. It's well maintained. Uh, it looks like it was... There's a little bit of rust on it. So maybe it was in someone's basement. (laughs) It's fine. God, first of all, even if it's not timely
1: still, you keep that up. It's a work of art.
0: Well, I thought of it. I was like, well, it's 2000 or 2023. And this is 1983. So maybe the dates match up. They don't. (laughs) That's not how calendars work. So not useful for me now, but maybe another year soon. I'll still keep it in the studio for entertainment value. Please, I
1: demand it. Well, we're going to do this one in two parts. We became interested in this because of some recent docu-series, dramatization-type series. Uh, The A&E series has done a really thorough coverage. It's four episodes. And then you watched the fictionalized
0: one for a minute, didn't you? I tried to. I gave it a chance uh, because I love Camille Nanjiani. Oh, Yes. But then I did have to turn it off because you and I like to go on every episode, if you're ever like, how does Heather and Christy tell a story? We go chronological, because that's how both of our brains work. We're like, wait, 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 who are these people? Why are we supposed to care about them? We like to start at the beginning. And also, we like to be factually accurate. And if you're making a dramatization, you're more interested in entertainment, less in facts. And so as I had a cursory understanding of this case and then started watching it, I I kept saying, well, that didn't happen. Oh, that's wrong. That's not right either. Nope. Uh Uh-uh. Oh, no, no, no. Nope. Not even close. Oh, he didn't do that. And so... I said, I had to just turn it off because I didn't want to come to y'all and then accidentally go, well, then he said this. And then that was Uh something from the series and not from uh, the facts, like a newspaper article or a book or watching an interview with him. So I wanted to keep my brain clutter free. I do love Camille, but had to tap out.
1: I, I, I understand that. I also love him. And, you know, I think he's probably pleased with his performance. So we can all just say, good for you.
0: That's been, like, pretty much the number one uh, comment that everybody's made on the series is, like, for whatever about accuracy or the writing or production value, he crushes it. Mm-hmm. He's great. He's great. Yeah.
1: Well, if you're interested in that, it's on Hulu, correct? Yes, it is. Yeah. yeah. And then the A&E one and a couple others we'll be referencing throughout. As always, they'll be in our show notes.
0: And several people over the years have sent this in to us, so... Thank you, everybody who sent it in on our at uh, sinisterhood.com slash contact. We have a form there and we do read those. So it's like, well, the people have spoken and now it's out in the news. We might as well dig yeah. in and see what the real story is.
1: I had no idea about this. So it's interesting that all of a sudden, 20 years later, it's, you know, kind of coming out. All the, I mean, drama
0: is an understatement of what went on here. Oh, for sure. Yeah. That's what, when people would email us or put it on the form, I thought, Chippendale's what? And then a cursory glance, you say, oh, there's enough for two at least episodes. Yes, for sure.
1: Well, I'm Christy. I'm Heather. And let's get into it. Solman Banerjee was born October 8th, 1946 in Calcutta, India to an upper class family. He grew up to work in his family's printing company for his father, who encouraged the boy to pursue a life of entrepreneurship. Solman said in a taped interview,
0: My father always told me, get the hell out of here. Find somewhere better to live.
1: He heeded his father's advice and around 1970, moved first to Canada and then to Los Angeles, saying in a later interview,
0: I want to see the good life and the nice sunshine, you know, pretty girls,
1: I guess. Someone began going by the name Steve because it was more American, according to his friend and former attorney, Bruce Naheen. Banerjee first owned a mobile gas station near LAX airport, but was soon taken with the idea of starting his own nightclub. He had seen news articles about the success of Studio 54 in New York and noticed that there was not a comparable club in L.A. He and a silent partner bought a spot called the Ruby Room in West L.A. and opened a club, renaming it Destiny 2.
0: And there's different varying uh, accounts of pretty much everything in this. As we realize when we're researching, depending on if you're getting the info from past interviews with Steve... Current interviews with Steve's family members, current interviews with the lawyer, Bruce, interviews with other people that have been involved. It's like this interesting uh, folklore where they say, oh, well, he called it Destiny 2 because he wanted to make it seem like it was successful already, that there was a Destiny 1 somewhere. And then someone else said, oh, well, he told me he named it Destiny 2 because he thought coming to Los Angeles was his first destiny and this was his second destiny. So, from all of this, it's. I think that's probably also why people are attracted to the story is because you have various, well, I heard this was mm-hmm. the reason. I heard this. You know, accounts kind of vary on this f- history, this legend of this, like, huge brand.
1: Yeah, it's a bit gossipy, which people like. And, you know, mm-hmm. so depending on who you talk to, you kind of get a different version. But we're going to try and present all sides because… We don't have a dog in this fight. We're right. just trying to present the facts.
0: I'm not trying to make anybody feel look better or worse. They right. look how they look. Y'all can judge.
1: <laughs> a newly graduated lawyer named Bruce Naheen came by the often empty club. The pair struck up a friendship, and Steve began going to Bruce for general business and legal advice. Another man, Ray Cologne, also became a regular at the club. With a background in music producing and petty crime... Cologne happened into the club in the summer of 1975 after having car trouble one day. He and Steve struck up a conversation, with Cologne providing Steve some advice on the club's band.
0: To give you an image of how boring and bad the club was, Bruce Naheen studied for the bar exam at Destiny 2. That's how quiet it was that he was able to study for exams.
1: (laughs) Did you go to nightclubs to study for the bar when you were in
0: school? Well, from the sounds of this one, it would have been just as good as the library because there's (laughs) no one talking, no one really there. Just some soft music in the background. It might be similar, maybe even quieter than like a Starbucks. Just some
1: light tinkling on the ivories, just some... Ambiance,
0: Just some... And apparently the previous owners had signed this long contract with the band. And so Steve just thought, oh, well, I have to have this band. Mm. Even though they were kind of old-fashioned at this time. Kind of more like the early 70s, yeah. kind of cheesy music, like Baccarat, like do-do-do-do, like Burke Baccarat. Yes, Bacharach, yes. Versus like the cool songs. Elevator
1: music. Mm-hmm. I mean, he really didn't have... Apart from he worked in his family's business and stuff, like uh, he didn't have experience with nightclubs which is a totally different ball of wax than just owning a business so you know you get people coming in saying hey have you thought about this to his credit he was very open to people's advice and and you know not thinking that he knew everything and was too good to take advice
0: that's like pretty much the number one thing about Steve Banerjee he may not have had good ideas but he would recognize a good idea yes
1: he surrounded himself with people that had good ideas According to the book Deadly Dance, Cologne encouraged Steve to get rid of the band and instead turn the club into a discotheque. Steve's silent partner was hesitant, but with Cologne's insistence that disco was the next big thing, Steve was all in. He fired the band and invested in high-tech music equipment. Bruce bought out the silent investor, becoming a 10% owner in the club. Steve began running specials to attract new customers, cheap drinks until 11 p.m., Free drinks for women on certain nights, and a DJ spinning what became the hottest music of the nineteen
0: seventies disco. And to Cologne's credit, they were kind of on the front end of it because then Saturday Night Fever comes out. It's this mm-hmm. huge. The soundtrack was like one of the best-selling albums of all time. Everybody loved disco. And then Steve would go, "Okay, we're gonna do free drinks until ten, and then or like whatever, free drinks until eight, and then dollar drinks until ten, and Gosh. then and then." Three dollar drinks until eleven, and five dollar drinks. So he would g- let people in cheap, and then raise the prices the night went on when they were too drunk to That's be like, smart. "Oh, well, I'm not going to pay that." They'd be like, "Ah, fuck it." And so he would. They would make announcements. They're like, "All right, everybody, get to the bar because the doll it's about to go up by a dollar." And so then people would rush the bar, and it was. I mean, he was making so much cash. They said he would like. I mean, he was hiding it everywhere and have to like constantly count it. Mm-hmm.
1: No, I mean hitting it right at the time when like women's lib. We were coming out of the 70s. Women were way more empowered. The sexual revolution was kind of going on. This was pre-AIDS. So people were loose. A lot
0: of cocaine. Mm -hmm. The pill. So they were unconcerned about STIs, more concerned about pregnancy. Well, now you don't have to be concerned about pregnancy. So they were uh, living it up. But the problem is, I would say, and we'll see, when you hit on something super trendy, if that trend starts to wane... You got to re- reinvent yourself. Got to rebrand.
1: Wanting a more refined atmosphere and to increase revenue, Steve, his lawyer Bruce, and Cologne brainstormed a new renovation. Steve had a taste for high society aesthetic, like dark woods and fine furniture. They called it Chippendale's after the furniture maker Thomas Chippendale. Bruce told A and E he suggested naming the club after the damn furniture in this place. Steve agreed, saying in a
0: later interview. It has a nice, catchy name to it, and we wanted to give it a classy name.
1: An early TV commercial for the club shows stylishly-dressed 1970s patrons whirling around the dance floor as an announcer promises,
0: Seven nights a week of pure discotheque. Chippendales, come dance with us.
1: It was a place to be. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. The A&E series I really enjoyed because I love old footage of like Studio 54 and nightclubs back then because it was a fucking all-out banger. Like, people were... It was packed to the gills. Everyone is just cutting loose. Nobody's too cool for school. Everybody's dancing, no matter who you are. It's just, like, the ultimate party.
0: Oh, yeah. Sweat on, sweat on, sweat You don't even care. Everybody's grabbing. Dance with whoever's next to you. Wild times. We were
1: watching... And we'll get to in a minute what happens. But I just said, Oh, can you imagine now? And Tommy's like, Well, this is all pre COVID. I was like, Still knowing what we know now, how is everybody just making out with each other willy nilly? Yeah.
0: Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, back then? Mm-mm. Didn't matter. Didn't matter. They said that so many people like constantly fucked in the bathrooms that it's oh, like, Oh, yeah. You're like, somebody needs to actually go to the bathroom. Yeah, you're like,
1: I actually have to go. They're like, go outside. We're fucking in this (laughs) stall. (laughs) Soon the club was reopened as Chippendales and was thriving more than ever. In early 1979, a bar patron named Paul Snyder approached Steve. The slick-talking Canadian had an idea to increase attendance at the club. Female mud wrestling. Steve thought this was a great idea and tried it. However, the idea seemed to falter. Steve didn't care too much about the mud wrestling. He was more interested in Snyder's wife, Playboy Playmate of the Year, Dorothy Stratton, as Steve saw her as a direct connection to his idol, Hugh Hefner.
0: And that's one thing that the Hulu television series, the dramatization, got right, is Steve having this obsession with the appearance of wealth, the appearance of success. And in his mind, he equated that with Hugh Hefner Big House people around him catering to his needs well-dressed a brand a fancy brand that beautiful everybody women. respected so paul schneider kind of schneider kind of sucks but then he's like anyway meet my wife who's actually direct friends with hugh hefner and steve's like come on in paul yes.
1: gorgeous beautiful yeah i mean i think hugh hefner was a lot of entrepreneurs um idol back then and when he grows up and you know um Even though he's middle class, his dad's telling him, like, get out, find a better place to live. So from a very young age, he kind of has this instilled in him of make money, be successful. This is the American dream.
0: And this, like, late 70s is when he was really, Hef Mm -hmm. was, like, becoming not just, like, Playboy as a brand, but him as a brand and him being centered as a celebrity. What we know now is he's a complete fucking nasty (laughs) dirtbag. But back then, I mean, he was very exalted. Yeah.
1: Chetmendale's creative director, Eric Gilbert, described Dorothy to
0: A&E, saying, She was a goddess, and she was with this sleazebag.
1: Meaning, Paul Snyder. Snyder's roommate said the sleazebag saw his new wife, Dorothy, as a
0: Rocket ship to the moon. And the footage of him with Dorothy at Playboy events is sickening. Grabbing her arm.
1: Yeah, he's a real gross guy.
0: Kind of controlling and, Yeah.
1: They said he was very, very flashy. Some described him saying he dressed like a pimp. That was uh, direct quotes from people, not just us saying that that's what he looked like. But he was very, um, wanted to be, you know, the flashiest guy in the room. But at the same time, he, like, wasn't charismatic.
0: Yeah. So yeah. He,
1: he dressed the part, but he did not walk the the walk.
0: Yeah, if you had to have me describe him, he looks like a Simpsons character with, like, a wide (laughs) collar, chains, uh, Mm -hmm. and, like, he would be like, hey, I got an idea. I want to wheel and deal you. Like, what do you think we should, you know, that's what he struck me as, is trying to, didn't care by what means it took, that he wanted to also be successful. So you see a lot of drive and greed and uh, obsession.
1: Yes, very smarmy. Up to this point, Chippendales was a run-of-the-mill discotheque, albeit a popular one. The genesis of Chippendales as we know it today, a room of screaming women and sexy dancers, is contested. According to the book Deadly Dance, Steve came up with the idea after seeing a similar male dance review in Redondo Beach, California. According to Bruce Naheen, it was Paul Snyder's idea after a gay male strip show he had seen in Canada. Regardless of who thought of the idea, Steve became excited about featuring male dancers at the club. He paid for newspaper ads announcing the auditions for hunky men over six feet tall, with long hairstyles and little to no body hair. Bruce was skeptical, telling ID Channel,
0: Men strip in front of women? I thought, this is the stupidest idea I've ever heard, but I had no conception of what women want.
1: Snyder offered to run the show, act as the MC,
0: and even cast
1: the dancers. The idea was a hit. Steve drew inspiration for the male dancers' outfits black pants, no shirt, wrist cuffs, collars, and bow ties from the Playboy Bunnies have had at the mansion, allegedly at the suggestion of Dorothy Stratton.
0: And that's when I think he kind of saw, oh, well, I'll just do the male version of what Playboy's doing and it'll be just as lucrative. I never
1: made that connection that it's the Playboy Bunny outfit reversed me neither <laughs> I I but <laughs> Which I, I mean silly <laughs> and but it's such it's very good marketing because even though your brain might not make that connection subconsciously you're like, oh, I've seen this before, I like it, and like uh who is it you always reference that says we want the same thing but a bit different our brain yep, Derek soup. Thompson, yes, yeah, so you know he he knew what worked and he's like, now we're just gonna apply it to this it's hilarious to me. That Nahin's like, women don't want to see that. Because (laughs) for, I mean, and they talk a lot in all these docuseries about how a lot of men at the time did assume, like, women aren't sexual creatures. They don't want the same thing men want. They just want to be, you know, at home watching TV or with the kids. Nah, we all want to meet at the club after a long day of work get loose on some daiquiris with a bunch of whipped cream on top, the footage from back in the day, the drinks, and Iconic. just throwing dollar bills, everybody just loving it, having fun. You, f- It's a very non-threatening environment, which Tommy mm-hmm. pointed out. That's what we want. And, and Steve was like, I'm going to give it to him.
0: Yeah, I think he had the idea of, oh, what? What environment do people feel most comfortable in? And it's like five-star service, right? If you turn around and say, I need a drink, it's there. If you need someone to light your cigarette, it's there. And so having, like you said, it's predominantly female, safe environment. Just You're printing money, my dude. Yeah.
1: The men would dance on stage, albeit poorly and somewhat robotically, while wearing jock straps, described as hokey by former dancer Eddie Pravat to A&E, Steve initially hired any male that was comfortable stripping
0: down. Nahid told Vice. We just had some guys and they ran around and they danced. Jock straps fell off. It was almost full Monty. Former dancer
1: Hadari Sababu agreed, telling AE,
0: You know, they come out dick swinging. They, they don't hide nothing. I mean, I was not really impressed.
1: <laughs> the videos of when this first started, I was crying it's cringy (laughs) it's it's not at all they are correct that this for me this does is it's not it's not a sexual experience for me to see somebody strip down to their tidy whities and swing you know a trench coat over their head but it's fun and i would go watch it so i would still pay to see it i guess
0: but it is more of like a ha-ha factor. Yes,
1: it seemed, you know, more like vaudevillian almost.
0: Silly, like yeah, a silly, silly factor. silly, yeah. Versus the themes that we have come to appreciate about Chippendales now. Mm-hmm.
1: One thing that always delivered, though, was when the men would venture into the audience to interact with the women. This segment, called the Tip and Kiss, involved the male dancers choosing an audience member to lean down and kiss. In turn, the audience member would stuff cash in the dancer's g-string. The show was a hit. Soon, throngs of women were lining up to enter the club. This is where I turned to Tommy. I said, (laughs) knowing what we know now, can you imagine? And even if it's the best of times, you just stuck your tongue down like 20 different women's mouths. And subsequently, you as the woman are getting all sorts of other people's stuff in your mouth, too.
0: Even if you're the first person to do a tip and kiss with that dancer of the night, he has done one yesterday and the day before and the day before. Yeah. So you got to get the guy first day, first <laughs> kiss, so as not to be, like, sloppy 100ths. Like, you're the one that's kissing him. Because that you guys, I want you to know that tip and kiss is not, he leans over and they go, they lean over and they go, Oh, full-on
1: tonsillectomy. Tongues west. just... Sword fighting. Nasty. Also, I'd like to go on record that I hate the name Tip and Kiss.
0: Oh, yeah. Hate it. It, it makes you feel like a, a type of way, and I hate it. It sounds like a Seinfeldism of, like, <laughs> they did the Tip and Kiss. What's that? You know, you tip the waiter, you give him a little kiss, and you leave. You did a Tip and Kiss on her? You guys work together. You're going to see her. You can't do a Tip and Kiss on someone you know. Yeah.
1: Yes, exactly. It's uh, And it's, it's also, it was wild to me to watch this. And look at it from from what Tommy pointed out as how it is like a safe environment for these women to feel like and they could do this and empowering because if it was reversed and this was 150 horned up men and one woman in a G string giving everybody tip and kisses, it's a much, much, much different vibe.
0: Yeah, that seems like it's a gladiator. Yeah. It? That seems yeah. horrifying.
1: And I imagine that, unlike the men who were in very into it, very much enjoying their jobs, women would feel very scared, very like they're uh, in a predatory environment. And what I kind of realized watching this is, even though the tables have kind of turned and the women seem like they're in this position of power, the fact that the men know... That they can do all of this and still and still leave not assaulted mm-hmm. shows really still how much power the male had in this situation.
0: That's a good point. Yeah, you, you sort of there. There's not like they had to have bouncers around the guys. You no. know that someone was gonna no uh interestingly too from steve's marketing perspective he encouraged the dancers always he's told them don't choose the hottest woman in the room he said i want you to vary it i want you to kiss everybody (laughs) yikes don't do that (laughs) but he was like you know i don't want you to just go like oh this lady looks like a supermodel Mm -hmm. and is all dressed up he's like you need to make everybody there feel like they're cared for which i guess as again goes to he's trying to make it a welcoming and safe environment but yeah you're right i mean like yeah, yeah i'm all for uh consensual sex work and you want to do it and like go for it but you're right i think there is a different power dynamic when it's one woman in a room with like hundreds and in this case over capacity hundreds and hundreds of women uh or men i mean you know all pawing at her.
1: the videos of this it is packed to the fucking gills i, I mean there's your the women are almost in each other's laps
0: yeah, the max capacity was 250, I believe, and they said almost nightly it was five to 600.
1: God damn. And the yeah. lines were just around the block. I mean, it really was, like, the place to be. It was revolutionary. People would drive from other states to, to come to this because oh, yeah. it was a place where women felt comfortable, like, letting their hair down, getting to be wild, getting to, you know, do what their husbands have been doing for decades so far and feeling like they're in a safe place to do it good for for you ladies
0: yeah (laughs) line up line up you line up and go (laughs) in that club
1: the success was not great for the neighborhood however the streets were lined on all sides with parked cars of women headed to the club neighbors complained of sex and drug use in the streets steve didn't care as there were healthy crowds in the place dancing until the wee hours bringing in tons of cash There's a very angry neighbor that's interviewed in the docuseries that is not happy about the sexual relations going on outside his window, which I can understand. Oh, yeah.
0: You think it was a bat gaming club. It was a quiet, nobody ever showed up to this. You're like, yeah, we live by a bar, but it's just like no one's in there. People go study for the bar in there. It's super low key. And then all of a sudden you have like the hottest thing in the state behind your house. And I mean, to be fair too, the news, news footage from the time, You know, old timey 1970s, like a guys out there going, my yard is full of condoms and needles (laughs) and packets where drugs were. And you're like, yeah, I feel bad for you, man. Like that would suck Yeah, that you think you live in like a nice little Western Los Angeles neighborhood. And all of a sudden it's chaos rains down every night,
1: especially if you've got kids and stuff like that. Yeah. I mean, it's it becomes a, a hazard for sure. Though the show was a success, Steve found himself under fire. He became the subject of regulatory actions and lawsuits for overcrowding and discrimination on the basis of sex and race. He refused to admit male patrons before 10 p.m., getting him in trouble with the California alcohol authorities for gender discrimination.
0: And both of these things are serious allegations. The overcrowding, they were saying, you know, cramming 600 people in a room meant for 250. The fire marshal's like, every massive deadly fire we've had in a public place has been due to overcrowding. Like the death, the loss of life yeah. stems from this overcrowding. And you have a club, a dark club with like no windows around. You know, how are all these people going to get out? Yeah. And the... the Honestly, no male patrons are for 10. That's a money-making scheme because he would tell the guys, "Hey, the show ends at 10. You're going to have a bunch of horned-up ladies like r- looking to score. Come on down."
1: Yeah. Also, uh, y- sure, maybe it's gender discrimination. I also think a bar without dudes for a couple hours and it's just a bunch of ladies hanging out, please. Yes. I'm yeah, sorry a non-threatening if that's discriminatory, <laughs> but I think it makes <laughs> For a lovely evening where everyone feels like they don't have to be, like, have their head on a swivel the whole time and their guard up.
0: Yeah, and and where, you know, I'm not going to get hit on. Yeah, yeah. If that's not what I want. Now, if that is what you want, then you are like, bring him in 10 (laughs) o'clock, let the floodgates open. I'll find me one to take home.
1: (laughs) Or just take to a stall.
0: That's all. why you don't have to take him home. Take him to Gary's yard over there. And he's like, God damn it, not again. And you're like, hey, Gary, I'll only be a few.
1: (laughs) Oh, man, The, the former dancers and the other people that worked there were like, it was a fuck fest. In the hallways, in the bathrooms, in offices, outside, in people's cars, just everybody doing coke everywhere. I'm not saying... I want to participate in all of that. But I have always had this burning desire that I wish for like just a few hours I could time travel back to the days of like Studio 54 and just experience one of those nights because I would love to know what that looked and felt like.
0: If you're like dream party you could go to um, any t- place in time, and you get to go to it and enjoy it, and you, you'll you be safe and you get to come back afterwards. I would 100% go to a post SNL party in the 70s. Oh, yeah. With like the original cast, like early days. Maybe like post Chevy Chase Bill Murray cast.
1: So, like Gilda Radner and.
0: Oh, yeah. Yeah. And Jane Arcroyd. Yeah. Newman, sure. Arcoid, yeah.
1: Mm-hmm. Even with like, I mean, any of them I would go to for sure. But yeah, just, it's wild to me to think of people just brazenly having sex in a hallway with other people walking by. But it was the eighties. It was the eighties. They hit different.
0: (laughs) When you get in the back of that station wagon.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Steve also disseminated a list to his employees, detailing certain types of people who were not allowed in the door. Steve included pimps, drug dealers and Romani travelers who he referred to by the derogatory slur as undesirables in his club. He overtly told his bouncer, who was black, not to allow in black patrons. Bruce Naheen told interviewers that there was never more than one black dancer in the lineup at a time. This was on purpose and at Steve's request. Steve's racism was internalized as well. Not wanting people to know the club was owned by an Indian man, Steve often pushed Bruce out into the limelight to act as a spokesperson. UK promoter Nikki Pope told a and that Banerjee's appearance also seemed to play a role in his hesitancy.
0: He's an accountant-type figure who just didn't really fit in with the story.
1: He also had a severe stutter when he would get s- stressed out, which I think he was very self-conscious about. They said when he would come into the club, he didn't really talk, he was very quiet, he just stood in the back, always with a smile on his face, but he... I think he wanted so much to have the personality of a host and an MC, the the front man that can go out there and do all the interviews, but he just didn't. He was very quiet. He was shy. He, you know, didn't, like Nikki said, he didn't really look the part, but he wanted to be real bad, and I imagine that sucks.
0: Yeah, I bet it, you know, that might be a reason why you lash out is self hatred, right? You want to be super strict with how the guys look, because you wish you looked that way. And you can't control your own personality or appearance. So you pick the ones that are what you wish you could be, and then you are horrible to people who look like you, who are not white, who are not well dressed or whatever, because you hate that about yourself and you don't want that to be prevalent in your club, and like you said yeah he his little he had a little round cherub like mm-hmm. a little cherub face, little chubby cheeks like me, a little baby face, <laughs> and i I mean, I love my chubby cheeks, but like you know that's not the like chiseled dancer that he wanted. he had a little sweet round face Big and glasses. Oh, wore his glasses, had a stutter, wore a, but kind of wanted to look like the classy guy and wear a suit. So that's probably the number one uh, not accurate part is that he was no Kumail Nanjiani. Oh, no. Kumail Nanjiani, put him on stage. and st- I love Kumail Nanjiani. Yeah. I love him. I love his personality. I love his comedy. And I think he's beautiful. Yeah,
1: He got ripped for, uh, who was he?
0: Oh, he was in The Eternals.
1: Yeah, he got ripped for that.
0: Well, thank you.
1: Thank you. thank you. you He was hot in the the,
0: the big sick. I thought he was hot in that, too. Oh,
1: yeah, yeah. He's great. And his personality is just stellar. But yeah, that's what Steve wanted to be. And he wasn't.
0: But you know what? In the long run, at least she got played by a good looking guy in the series. Hey,
1: that's all we can ask for.
0: Sinister Hood will be right back. With Masterclass, you can learn from the world's best minds anytime, anywhere, at your own pace. You can learn the power of storytelling with LeVar Burton, elevate your singing and stage presence with Christina Aguilera, or learn skateboarding from Tony Hawk. Man,
1: I I always want to learn from all three of those people. Masterclass is accessible on your phone, web, or smart TV, offering classes on a wide variety of topics, all taught by world-class instructors at the top of their fields.
0: Each class is broken out into individual video lessons, usually around 10 minutes long. Members can explore at their own pace, and each class is supported by downloadable materials, class guides, recipes, or more.
1: With over 2,500 classes from a range of world-class instructors, that thing you've always wanted to do is closer than you think. You've taken many of these classes, haven't you?
0: I have. I was just pulling it up on my master class app here. I am halfway through Roxanne Gay's uh, lessons, and I'm on the consuming and criticizing culture. So she is a very famous essayist, and she writes all about po- not only just pop culture, but the intersection of pop culture and how we care for ourselves and what it- those stories mean to us personally. And I love her style. And I thought, well, if she's willing to teach, I'm willing to learn.
1: Oh, yeah. Hundreds of video lessons from 150 plus of today's most brilliant minds are available anytime, anywhere on iOS, Android, desktop, Apple TV, Amazon Fire TV, and Roku.
0: Learn how to write anything from a book or a screenplay to just a letter. Learn how to communicate with your boss or your family, how to make a dinner worthy of a Michelin star, or just how to make really good scrambled eggs.
1: Whatever you're interested in, there's a class for you. Over 150 exclusive classes taught by instructors you know and love.
0: I highly recommend you check it out. Get unlimited access to every class. And as a Sinisterhood listener, you get 15% off an annual membership. Go to
1: masterclass.com creepy now. That's masterclass.com creepy for 15% off Masterclass. The male dance review turned out to be a huge hit. Even though the men weren't very good at dancing, Steve insisted they offer top-notch service and make every woman feel welcome, wanted, and safe. From the valets outside the clubs to the servers and bartenders inside, every man was to treat every woman as a VIP guest. Crowds loved it, and Steve was making more money than ever. Because of the show's increased popularity, other clubs in the area began hosting their own male dance reviews. Steve was enraged at the competition. In 1979, Steve called Ray Cologne into his office and offered him $7,000 to burn down two rival clubs that were holding all-male strip shows. Cologne was incredulous.
0: And the, the competition was not uh, hard to draw people away because the parking was better at all these other clubs. <laughs> oh, man, that'll do it for me. I mean, I know. And so they'd say, OK, well, you can either wait in line for an hour to get into Chippendales and you have to park six blocks away and you'll probably get a ticket because cops were like, oh, well, they would shut them down for overcrowding. And if that didn't work, then they would go like go in and just ticket every single car that they thought was uh, for Chippendales, you know, if it's not in a driveway or whatever. Mm-hmm. And Plus, so you Plus, Gary's like, like, oh. out there
1: bitching at everybody.
0: Right. You're like, <laughs> Fucking Gary. Yeah, you're like, I'm going to get yelled at for fucking in a yard, and my car's going to get towed. It ain't worth it. And so, or or like you said, people were driving from far away. Mm -hmm. So you're like, oh, well, there's one up the street, and the dancers weren't that good. So it's like, it doesn't really matter. I'll still see the same thing. Yeah.
1: Although at first, Cologne tried dissuading Steve from his plan, he eventually took the money and agreed to arrange for the arson. However, Cologne procrastinated for five months on getting the job done, Nervous about possibly killing everyone if the clubs were occupied at the time of the fire. Eventually, Steve put the pressure on Cologne to deliver. So Cologne got connected with two wannabe criminals who started a small fire outside one of the rival
0: clubs, Moody's, after hours. It's also a good lesson don't take $7,000 to burn a place down if you don't plan to burn the place down. Because you spent it. That's so. Low amount, right? Uh, no, not well, for the Well, I guess 70s. back then,
1: what's 7000 back then to us now?
0: I was actually just looking about what $1,000 in the 60s was, because we were watching Dick Van Dyke last night, and it was almost like you just added a zero, but to be sure.
1: Oh, shit, really? So 1000 in the 60s would be $10,000 now?
0: It was like $100 was like $1,200. Yeah, $7,000 in 1979 is the equivalent purchasing power to $28,000 today.
1: Okay, well, then... I mean, still, don't take any money to burn a rival club down, but 28 grand sounds more reasonable than seven.
0: But still, if you, he took it and then he spent it. And then five months later, Steve said, well, where's the fire <laughs> or my money? And he was like, oh, no.
1: <laughs> About that.
0: About that.
1: Fortunately for Moody's, neither Cologne nor his accomplices were professional arsonists. Though there was a fire, news reports from the time mentioned that no major structural damage was done. According to the book Deadly Dance, Steve was angry that the Moody's fire was a failure. Steve publicly told employees and the press he would be beefing up security to keep everyone at Chippendales safe. Of course, Chippendales would never suffer a fire like the one at Moody's because, unbeknownst to anyone but Steve and Cologne, Steve was the one behind it.
0: And, he, and Steve in the media said, oh, you know, it's probably a religious group. The religious groups are all really mad at us right now. Who knows who might have done this? I don't know. You know, very openly talking about it in the media when he was fully the one behind it. Yeah. I mean,
1: he was often credited as saying no publicity is bad publicity. So if it meant that he got to get his face and his name and his business's name in front of a camera, he was going to take that opportunity.
0: And he's like, by the way, we'll never have a fire because we have so much money for security. And it's like, and also. And also,
1: I'm not going to light my own building on fire.
0: Unless it's advantageous to me, in which case run. And I'm like, this man would have burned his own place down. He was unscrupulous. For sure. Soon, Steve had no
1: need to worry about competition, as a brilliantly talented showman would join the Chippendales Enterprise and change it forever. Nicholas John DeNoia Jr. was born May 14, 1941, in Union City, New Jersey. According to his nephew, Nick's parents came to the United States from Italy and landed at Ellis Island. Part of a large, loving family, Nick was a born entertainer. He loved dancing, theater, and show business. He produced a play at Forge Theater, acted as a lead in a feature film, and had prior experience teaching theater. Living in New York, Nick's career in show business was going well. He won two Emmys for his work on a children's show he created called Unicorn Tales. Nick was then recruited by California-based cartoon powerhouse Hanna-Barbera. In early 1980, the job took Nick to Los Angeles, where he heard rumors of a popular club called Chippendales.
0: Very interesting career because he had Broadway experience and behind-the-camera experience, production experience. He just seemed like like a polymath, but when it came to entertainment, like no matter what, he just had that eye for what people wanted to see and just could deliver it.
1: He was one of those creatives that's good at everything. He could dance, he could sing, he could play instruments, he could act. He was kind of the whole package. I have to get my hands on the Unicorn Tales series, because seeing just a clip of it on the A&E show, what... And that is all. That's it. What? (laughs) Question mark. It looks... (laughs) I was like, "Was this a real show?" And Tommy said it had to have been a local New York show, and I equated it maybe to, wasn't it called Mister Peppermint? Yeah, like that's the a Dallas local show. show here. Yeah, and th- so maybe it was a local New York show. It looks wild as hell.
0: I want to see it so bad. See if we can get. <laughs> we'll see if we can get a copy of it somewhere,
1: or if you remember this, please email. If you've got like. Memories of this or or maybe an old VHS tape or something we can see. I would love to see it. Nick visited Chippendales, where he met with its owner, Steve Banerjee. With his background in theater, dance, and the entertainment industry, Nick was not initially impressed with the club. In particular, he thought that while the male dance review could be a huge success, the female mud wrestling was beneath his artistic talents. Nick had only worked with Hanna-Barbera for a short time, but he already wanted something more. This club offered him a creative outlet and a massive financial upside. There was one major hiccup, Paul Snyder. Steve's attorney, Bruce, detailed
0: Paul's many shortcomings to a and saying, Paul sucked as a promoter, as an MC, and as a human being.
1: Snyder had no charisma on stage, and soon Steve decided it was time to cut ties. Snyder had no contract with the club only working for a percentage of the door.
0: He was ousted, with Bruce explaining. He gave us an idea, and he was gone.
1: So all of this, while it seems like is taking decades, is really taking place in a matter of like a year or two. So everything's moving really fast. The success came on hard and fast and just was like up, up, up during this entire
0: time. Oh, definitely. More eyes are on the club. Now it's like more people are seeing it. And when it does get hype because it kind of is the only thing of its time and then people show up and they're like, I get it. But it kind of also sucked that MC was like a weirdo and like not very entertaining. And like the guys were okay at dancing. You know, it's one of those where you're like, Damn. I mean, it's hot because it's the first of its kind, but it could be so much better. And you see like other clubs like Moody's or whatever start to do it where it's slightly improved. And again, Steve wasn't an idea man. He was a recognition of good ideas man. Mm -hmm. And Paul had basically run his course like he had ceased being useful and much we'll see they they play a little fast and loose with the business side of things as far as uh writing out you know agreements which come on bruce you're a lawyer buddy i mean i get it though yeah. you have a client like steve and you're like make sure that we have this signed and they go ah fuck you i'm not signing that you're like cool 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 we'll deal with that <laughs> on the other side
1: everything you said about walking into this and seeing it and being like yeah this could be cool but i don't know is what I imagine 90% of people when they see their first improv show leave, say. <laughs> so I feel this. I, I get it.
0: Yeah, it's how I felt when I went into LaBear, which is the Dallas oh. Chippendales. I hesitate to even compare no, the two. No, I don't
1: think we can sully the good name of Chippendales dancers and compare them to LaBear.
0: Yeah, when I, I've told the story a million times on the show, but when I, I, in addition to the man that dressed like the murderer from Saw, like Jigsaw, which is... <laughs> Sexual to no one. The lady had her blindfold on, and they bring out a guy, and he just gyrates all over her with a full saw mask on and then takes the blindfold off. The shock on her face, we all felt it. We oh. knew. Uh, but she then was th- celibate after that. Sure. <laughs> she did, She called off the wedding. She joined a <laughs> convent. She was a bride, of course. But the guy came and danced on our table, and just the lack of motion even. I was like, you don't even look like you want to be here, and it makes me sad and not yeah. horny because you look upset. I'm upset. We're all upset. No one's have. <laughs> A good time. I've been
1: to LaBear's more times than I like to admit. We, I guess, I was thinking about this earlier. You had to be 18 to get in, right?
0: I think so. Or did you? I was in my 20s when I went, so I'm not sure.
1: Because I distinctly remember us going in high school on more than one occasion. So I don't know how that happened. (laughs) I didn't have a... That's not true. I did have a fake ID for a minute. So maybe... Things were loose in the 90s. You could just like do stuff way easier than you could now. People didn't care
0: as much. Well, they swipe your ID now, so you can't. Yeah,
1: Yeah, I think this was just a a glance and hand it back. But I once saw a stripper do a routine to Seven Nation Army by the White Stripes. That was weird. Not at all sexual. Another one was dressed as Batman. Could be sexy. Wasn't. No. No. It was always it was never sexy. It was just funny and fun. And yes. it was a place where like you could just kind of have like a girls' night out with a lack of judgment.
0: Yes. I think what we and by we I mean just me and everybody uh who's got the same shit that you're into as me. But when you want to see a sexy man dance for you on stage I personally, I need context. I'm like, why are you, why are you Saw? What what brought you here? I need like a monologue or something and then sexiness. Yeah. I'm not just trying to have Saw hump on a girl on stage. That's disturbing to me. So I get I it. I like why... that you keep
1: calling him Saw.
0: I guess his name is Jigsaw. Uh, well, but well I've his seen friends him... call
1: him Saw and y'all are close. So that makes sense.
0: I've seen him without his clothes on. I'm allowed <laughs> to true. call him Saw. <laughs> aloud, but you know when you I think whenever you think about the bare minimum is they're getting bare, but what we want is a bigger concept and all Paul Snyder had his idea was just guys take their shirts off and I'll tell like, okay the next guy is this guy, and so I think he was bare minimum idea and also probably not super interested in growing this because his focus was on how can Dorothy be famous and how can I mm-hmm. dig my claws in her and make myself you know, more important using her. Cause that's what it was is he really wanted fame and fortune for the two of them and didn't care if his grip on her was damaging her. And so the two of them started to split up as kind of, as this was all happening.
1: Yeah. Everyone that was around at that time said he was just a piece of shit. Like Bruce yeah. said, he was, he sucked at everything. He wasn't yeah. a likable guy. He wasn't even good at his job, so and he was uh, abusive to his wife, so he had zero redeeming qualities. Well, shockingly, on August fourteenth, 1980, the bodies of Paul Snyder and his wife, playmate of the year Dorothy Stratton, were found in her L.A. apartment. Paul had tortured Dorothy for several hours before killing her and then himself. Several of Dorothy's friends explained how badly Paul was taking all her success, and pointed to his jealousy and her want for a divorce as a reason for the murder.
0: And she was about to kind of cross over from Playboy into more traditional mainstream media with this role in a movie, and she was so charismatic and everybody loved her that it was pretty much she was going to be kind of this next big thing, Mm -hmm. and said, finally, I'm brave enough to say, I don't want to be with this abusive man anymore, and what do we see? He wants to exert the ultimate control over her.
1: Yeah, they had separated... About two months prior to this, and he obviously wasn't taking it well and then did the absolute unthinkable. The recount of this from the neighbor that that found them in the A&E series is, is really sad. I mean, even after all these years, he was still very emotional about it because that is not a scene that you ever forget.
0: No, not at all. And especially a person that you, by all accounts, she was so kind to everybody she interacted mm-hmm. with. She was very beloved. She had this really generous heart. And so you get really, even if you're just a neighbor or whatever, you you feel connected to him. So, yeah, he was, Bruce Nahin nailed it. He sucked as a human being.
1: According to dancers at the club, Steve tried distancing himself from Snyder in the bad publicity of the murder. The public didn't seem to connect the tragedy with the club. And attendance at Chippendale's continued to grow with the new MC. Steve brought Nick in at a rate of $1,000 per week to improve the show quality using his Broadway background. Nick agreed in exchange for complete creative control. According to Clark Wilson, the MC at the time, with Nick's new changes,
0: that's when it really started to take off. And, and it's true.
1: That's when the drama started to unfold even more. You think well, he's already tried to burn down his competitors. Yeah, but imagine when your competitor is also your coworker.
0: Yeah, your colleague. Well, and I think that that was, shows you about Nick where even if he's coming in, because it was kind of like, okay, temporarily come in and see if you can boost this. He said, okay, but also uh, I don't take notes from other people. I give notes.
1: Yeah, he was uh, a feisty a feisty one. I mean, all the, the footage of him from training the guys and and going over the routine. He did not take shit. He seemed intimidating. One of the former dancers, huge guy, former military said, he was the most intimidating person I've ever had in my face. And I've had drill sergeants in my face screaming at me. And Bruce was a, you know, a slight kind of smaller man. So, but he, his attitude and his no bullshit, no nonsense packed a punch
0: yeah and they said nick was also really hardcore with his uh being people being timely and people showing up and that also he when he came in said i am who you answer to and so if a dancer said oh you know i'm gonna be late or i'm not gonna be able to make it he would say okay you're fired and they would say oh well i told steve i was gonna be late and he said steve's not your boss i'm your boss and if you're not at rehearsal in 15 minutes you're fired and would do it
1: yeah because there was a line of guys that would take their spot and and they all knew it when you also get a colleague like that in the mix and you're a a quiet shy person that has a stutter and it's exacerbated when you're stressed it's hard to get a word in edgewise with with someone like Nick and I imagine you could be steamrolled pretty easily
0: and especially if Nick says I you want my brain you want my creativity then my it's my rules Mm -hmm. and then Steve's like but it's my place so then you see Head started to butt. Yeah. Sinisterhood will be right back. Helix Sleep is a premium mattress brand that provides tailored mattresses based on your unique sleep preferences.
1: The Helix lineup includes 14 unique mattresses, including a collection of luxury models, a mattress for big and tall sleepers, and even a mattress made just for kids.
0: So how will you know which Helix mattress works best for you and your body? Take the Helix Sleep quiz and find your perfect mattress in under two minutes. Because Helix knows there's no better way to test out a new mattress than by sleeping on it in your own home. That's why they offer a 100-night risk-free trial. Try out your new Helix mattress, see how your body adjusts, and if you decide it's not the best fit, you're welcome to return for a full refund.
1: Every body is unique, so Helix offers models with memory foam layers to provide optimal pressure relief if you sleep on your side, models with a more responsive foam to cradle your body for essential support in stomach and back sleeping positions, plus enhanced cooling features to keep
0: you from overheating at night. I took the Helix Sleep Quiz, and I was matched with a Moonlight Luxe model because I wanted something that offered support because I'm a side sleeper, but also softness because sometimes I also sleep on my stomach, we both have our helixes, and we love them. I
1: do. I have the sunset looks, pretty much for the same reasons you do. But I am more of a side sleeper, so it recommended that one to me more than to you because you're more of a flip flopper. Yes,
0: I'm that's a change upper.
1: Yeah, that's how finite this this uh, quiz is it gets roll right? into the nitty gritty. Not only is the mattress the best I've slept on, but the setup was fast and easy. Helix mattresses are delivered in a box and straight to your door for free. By supporting Helix, you're allowing them to support us and our show. Go purchase your Helix and thank us later for your best night's sleep.
0: Helix is offering up to $200 off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners. Go to helixsleep.com creepy. With Helix, better sleep starts now.
1: Nick introduced costumes, better choreography, and an overall theme of the show, fulfilling women's fantasies. The business grew bigger than it ever had before. Steve loved any publicity and was fond of calling the fire marshal or religious protest groups on himself in order to make headlines. Most nights, there was no need. With a hunky shirtless man in cuffs and collars stationed outside the club, waving down passing cars, lines would form in front of the club before it even opened. News footage from the time shows dozens of excited women waiting to be let into the club where they could let their hair down and run wild. The popular show continued to get shut down for overcrowding and discrimination. However, the only outcome was additional fines. For Chippendales, the fines became a cost of doing business. To offset the cost of the fines, Steve began selling merchandise. This included a deck of playing cards featuring photos of the shirtless, mostly hairless hunks, as well as a line of women's jeans featuring an outline of a Chippendales dancer embroidered on the back pockets.
0: It's what every woman wants. You gotta (laughs) get
1: yourself a pair.
0: I'm gonna try to find them. You know the mud flaps on the back of a truck with a lady outline? It's like that, but your butt. (laughs)
1: Yep. And what I can only imagine is the highest waist and the lightest wash,
0: Oh yeah, oh yeah. So we'll see what we can find. I'll see if I can get a pair. It looked like it was silver embroidery thread, but the uh, the guy standing out front was really effective because as if it wasn't already popular enough. I mean, that'll stop traffic. Mm -hmm. There's a good looking hunk out. I mean, he was literally like waving a car in like a uh, parking attendant Mm -hmm. would, and then as soon as you pulled in, they would like open your door for you if they were, you know, if you were going to park nearby, or they would escort you in. So even if you had competitors. They started the show, like, in the street, and nobody else was doing that.
1: Yeah. Also, I think it's a kind of hazard see a half-naked man on the side of the road. Next thing you know, you're in a ditch or you've rear-ended somebody. Beep,
0: beep. (laughs)
1: Slam on my brakes. Banerjee also developed lingerie, jigsaw puzzles, coffee mugs, exercise tapes, and an annual calendar, which became a huge hit. According to Deadly Dance, Steve was selling a million copies of the calendars per year and bringing in $8 million a year on merchandising alone. Creative director of Chippendales at the time, Eric Gilbert, admired his boss's tenacity, telling A&E,
0: He was always pushing himself for a higher level of success. And truly, I mean, the that's all you can do, really, with regulatory actions like, you know, uh, punishing someone for discrimination or for overcrowding or uh, you know, racial se- discrimination on the basis of sex, whatever, is fines. And Steve was like, OK, how much is the fine? Yeah. And they're like, it's uh, $800,000. He's like, hmm, we don't have coffee mugs, do we? Start selling coffee mugs. <laughs> yeah. And they go, OK. And they would sell. And immediately he's like, all right, well, we paid for the fine. And also we made a little bit. So, hmm.
1: In the footage I've seen, it is – in fact, I'm trying to think if I saw one woman that wasn't white and it doesn't come to mind. Like the bouncer at the time who was black said, he didn't want anyone but white women really in there because Mm -hmm. white women were the ones that were spending money, he thought, and that were more affluent and would have more money to spend. So therefore – He had on stage what he thought white women only wanted, which was a bunch of other white men that all, you know, had this stereotypical look. So there would be, like we said earlier, the one black dancer. But with the calendar, the bouncer said Steve was in it for the money and he wanted what sold. And he didn't think that a white woman in the South was going to have a black man on her wall, you know, for a month out of the year. And so he just didn't do it because – one of the black dancers who's interviewed in the A&E series he said, I knew how he felt, but I've still considered him a friend because he said in his mind, he thought of it as he's it's just business to Steve. But he was a dancer and he said the women would ask him, like, why aren't you in the calendar? And there was only white men in the calendar.
0: Oh, yeah. And Steve had that. I think the inherent he internalized racism and in exactly what you said. He thought Oh, the only people with money are white people. Mm-hmm. And instead of saying this club is and, and you see it time and time again on studies on discrimination, whether it's on the basis of gender or sex or, or LGBTQ or race. discrimination hurts business That's actually stupid and very bad for business like it's also you're a bad person but if you are just greedy if you are concerned only about money it's also very stupid to discriminate too so uh in that case he wasn't that good of a businessman but he was also very of the times and i think he like the the dancer said it's okay if you can bifurcate that in your head of like it's just business but it's also not it's entrenched Mm -hmm. internalized racism that he was not at all interested in exploring
1: no and i don't think we should separate those two things it it's not an you can't use the excuse it's just business right no you're a shitty person and it should shouldn't be allowed of course for this sure. was 20 years ago not that it still doesn't happen today i would also like to say it's very presumptuous for steve to assume that all white women only want to see these white men on stage as if he knows what what every woman in that club is
0: into. I'm not trying to discriminate. I got I got celebrity crushes of all ilks. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, you're right. He, I think he was just, he thought he knew and was driven almost solely by money. I also want to point out, because I do it all the time, that you said this was 20 years ago. And I frequently, minus from 2000, from the year 2000 when I'm talking about when ago, how long ago something was,
1: Oh my God! Was but this forty years ago? Forty,
0: almost forty years ago. <gasps> this calendar is forty years old. I'm having 83- an existential crisis right now. <laughs> well, I only said it because you didn't. No one told you when you turned forty, and I didn't want this to be another <sighs> one of those. No, you're right. I've
1: I can't believe. I think twice now in this episode. I've said twenty years ago, and in my head, have been thinking twenty years ago when I know what year it is and when this happened. But I think I blacked out.
0: No, I mean, I genuinely, if I'm trying to calculate time, I usually go off of the year 2000 because that I was in, what, sixth grade? I was uh, 12 or 13. You know, you kind of go, oh, that's whenever I start learning about history to where it's like, really, I'm going to remember it. Mm -hmm. And no, I've done the same thing. And I was like, oh, 1983, this is like a 20-year-old calendar. (laughs) And I was like, no, no, 93, 03, 13, 23. God damn. (laughs) This is four. This is truly like vintage. It's forty I mean, years old. Yeah.
1: I, earlier, I said I was born in seventy nine, so I was four years old when that calendar came out. I just turned forty four, so it it all. God, oh Christ!
0: The math tracks. Yeah, like I said, I, all I pointed that out not because when you said it, I went, "Hmm, it was twenty years old," and then I looked at the calendar, I was like, "No, it is not." <laughs> No, it was not.
1: <laughs> well, good things times meaningless, or we'd all be uh, really flipping out right now.
0: Nah, it's all just made up.
1: Mm-hmm. Across the country, the New York club scene was hotter than ever, and Nick thought Chippendales was ready to expand to another location. Nick proposed that Steve remain in L.A. to run the flagship location while he headed to New York to open the new spot. Steve agreed, and in October of 1983 the Chippendales' New York location opened inside a club called Majeek. In no time, the New York spot was even more popular than L.A. Nick felt he was entitled to some of the profits beyond just his salary for all the work he'd put in.
0: And to be fair, I mean, Nick flew to New York. He worked with Majeek. He worked on completely casting the new dancers, choreographing the new dancers. And at what point are you putting in more sweat equity? Like you're putting in more hours than what you're being compensated with your salary that you do deserve sweat equity, that you've put those hours in. But Steve was like, "Mm -mm, no, no.
1: No, Nick for sure changed the entire review for the better. I mean, the footage of him taking these dancers from, like we said, you're in briefs, Uh, swinging a a bathrobe around your head to like, these are choreographed moods. He'd be like, Derek, you're too slow. I told you the jump is too slow. You know, he demanded perfection. They were ripped. It was was like a a Broadway production, but they just happened to be in G-String's.
0: For sure. Well, and, and your, the the guys in the cuffs and collars, he would choreograph that kind of like a kick line at like, mm-hmm. you would see at Radio City Music Hall. And then each individual guy had a dance and a theme and like, I'm the safari guy, or I'm like the military guy. Construction kind of like
1: worker. What,
0: what you would imagine like Magic Mike is now, mm-hmm. that was, he, but that was revolutionary. Like he invented that. He created that, that like, I'm the guy gonna come out and I'm gonna be, ooh, I'm gonna be the naughty professor or I'm gonna be the perfect man, which was like the sexy Frankenstein guy. And none of that that because like I said earlier, I'm like, I don't want to just see Mm -hmm. Jigsaw's dick. I want some context. (laughs) And Nick Denoia was like, I got you. Here's your context.
1: Do you think think his his dick is painted like his face?
0: Yeah, yeah. It's red on the end. It's all white with the red circle and then a little poop
1: (laughs) right on the And his balls are the little trike wheels. (laughs) why would you ever say this is
0: what i'm coming out
1: to at a strip club
0: the tricycle that he rode out on which he did was <laughs> adult size it was and a-
1: like you said before how did he did they was that in his rider was he like and i have to have a red uh radio flyer <laughs> tricycle in Branded. the green room before i go on
0: uh they're like straight from reno nevada and i said we are in dallas texas did you ride the <laughs> tricycle from reno
1: at the very least you had to check it in, <laughs> on a plane or put it get it and put it in the truck of his car or something
0: <laughs> god yeah i guess i guess you get you a u-haul and drag it behind yeah cost of doing business what are these receipts for i had to deduct the cost of the u-haul trailer to take my tricycle from <laughs> reno to dallas
1: Steve continuously diminished Nick's role, often calling him
0: just an employee.
1: Meanwhile, Nick was in the spotlight giving interviews in which he was sometimes credited as the founder of Chippendales or called Mr. Chippendales by interviewers. Steve was incensed because Steve wasn't willing to offer up ownership. Nick decided to leave and create a rival dance troupe. Bruce was also a 10% owner in the club. So the lawyer often found himself the go-between to keep the peace between Steve and Nick. Bruce convinced Nick to stay with Shippendales, and Nick flew to L.A. to discuss his future with Steve.
0: And Bruce, being a lawyer, realizes that Nick has no non-compete, no non-disparagement, nothing. And now his face has been out on... Phil Donahue, Sally Jesse, freaking Barbara Walters, like everything. And in every interview, it's always, so you're the creator of Chippendales. And he's like, yes, as as the show is known today, I created it, which is true. Mm -hmm. And then... Super charismatic, funny on stage. I mean, to the point that sometimes the dancers would be asked questions and he would just start answering for them. (laughs) And so as a lawyer, you're like, like in a second, he could leave and start his own thing. He could basically destroy Chippendales because all they would be able to do would be kind of do the same thing that Nick did. But he had that clever, creative. He was going to go and be fine no matter where he was. And I loved his new dance crew. His idea was to call it US Mail, M-A-L-E. We deliver. Oh,
1: that's very good branding. He was great at what he did. Mm -hmm. And he was a great interviewer. He was like you said, charismatic, just real affable, you know, not at all nervous, the complete opposite of Steve in front of the camera.
0: Oh yeah. And then Steve started trying to get coached of like, okay, yeah. well, I need to do like public speaking coaching because I want to be Mr. Chippendale's, not him. And it's like you're never, even if you have very, very good coaching, that natural, like you said, affability that Nick Denoya had, he was a performer. Mm-hmm. He was a Broadway performer, somebody that can get on stage or get on camera and do like do like he did. It's nothing to go on Sally Jesse and have an interview. And so, yeah, you imagine if you're Steve, you're pissed off because you want the attention, but you don't want to give up any of the ownership, and then your lawyer's telling you he could fuck us like easily he could just leave and take the whole his brain with him and honestly i don't know that they would have any of the dancers sign non-compete so he's like he could take the whole dance troupe if you just said do you want to stay with steve or do you want to go with nick what 80 percent of them 90 percent of them go with nick
1: yeah even though he was uh often a real asshole to him they knew that the, that was where the money was going to be
0: well and what did we say earlier? how much was seven thousand dollars equals twenty eight thousand mm-hmm. dollars Those dancers started making something like eighty thousand dollars a year damn and what is that 1983 it would be equivalent to like two hundred and forty thousand dollars a year today so if you were before making like okay tips but then Ning came in and now you're making 80 grand a year mm-hmm. uh no like I, yeah. I'd go with him I'm going with the money no sorry
1: yeah. I have to point out because we have I we I can't believe we haven't mentioned yet the MC that comes into the picture during all of this with the who in the a series is wearing a top hat and it and comes into his interview on roller skates and at first I was like who the fuck is this guy this he is too much by the end I loved him oh, he was yeah. so Just like Nick, so good on stage, so just, like, it was effortless for him. And he was very funny and, like, made these jokes and would banter back and forth with the dancers and with the audience and stuff. He was, like, he warmed the crowd up, and then he was just kind of, like, this comedian that was there for laughs and stuff. But he also knew, no one's coming here to see me. They're coming here to see these guys. And he said, you know, he's always been you know, kind of the funny one. And he was much looked different than the, than the other dudes. And so I wonder if he was kind of not jealous, but, you know, looked at these dudes and was like, that, that I, I kind of always wanted to be on that end of things, but he got to be on the other side. And I think that his role was pivotal in the enjoyment of these women, because if I, if there was a place like this now, and that guy was emceeing, I would go see it today
0: oh 100 percent. you're right and i wonder i mean maybe a little bit of man i wish i could do that but also i bet they tip him out i mean he's paid well and you you know you get a share of everything especially if you're setting them up to do so well and again what we talked about earlier with the safe aspect of it of like being comfortable and safe knowing that there's always a host from the beginning who is non-threatening goofy sweet Mm -hmm. on roller skates goofy top hat that you know oh well the mc is nice so it immediately puts everyone at ease. There's tension because it's like, we're all here for this sexy purpose. And he makes these jokes so he can break the tension so everybody's able to go, Mm -hmm. and relax and watch it, that you're right. And guess what? Nick Denoya's idea to have a very showy, charismatic not just and your next answer is this i mean very much like all right how are you feeling oh you look like you're ready to have fun oh yeah you know, silly bring everybody in and it's again this it became like an immersive starting from the parking lot a show that it's like you're all in it it's like medieval times but with naked men (laughs) wait a minute copyright great idea (laughs) we need that i was about
1: to say jousting is gonna get a lot more dangerous nice well from I mean, all of our years in comedy clubs, having a good host is critical and crucial to to the, a good show. And if you have a shitty one, it really does not just affect the crowd, but the performers, too. So going from someone like Paul Snyder, who had zero charisma, to someone, I can't remember the guy's name, but he, he was great. We'll look it up and by the end of this, say it. He uh, was total opposite. So... He was, he was just a, a critical person, I think, in the success of the show. For sure. Dan Patterson, a host at the club during this time and a 1983 calendar model, would have dinner with Steve at a diner a few times per week. At one of these dinners on November 13th, 1984, the two men were accompanied by Nick, who had a proposal. Nick offered to stay with the company and not ask for any equity in the New York club. In exchange, Steve just had to sign over all of Chippendale's touring rights in perpetuity. Steve agreed, thinking it was a great deal, as there was no touring show at that time. The men memorialized the deal on a napkin. As Dan Patterson sat by, shocked that Steve would sign away something with so much potential value, with no official documents and no lawyers involved. Official
0: or not, that napkin is binding.
1: So many... Famous deals have been done on napkins. The Southwest Airlines deal was done on a napkin. There's a huge bronzed statue of said napkin at the um, the F- Frontiers of Flight Museum here in Dallas that's, you know, uh, all about Southwest Airlines. So even if you don't have anybody present, I guess you just have it in writing Like you said, it's all it takes.
0: It's all it takes is a writing. All Doritos Locos Tacos were conceived on a napkin between a Tostitos executive and a Yum Brands executive.
1: Nice.
0: And here we are living the dream with the Doritos Locos Tacos. Here we are. But yeah, I mean, all you need for an agreement, I mean, you can have an oral agreement, too. You have to have an offer, acceptance. A consideration you know a meeting of the minds and here we are we have these things and so you know you say i'll do this if you do that and he says okay i mean there it is you have a deal and now not only that you do have a signed napkin and you know nick was like fucking laminate that bitch yeah for sure in perpetuity
1: steve's lawyer bruce explained to annie why steve was so eager to sign
0: saying nick was offering us something that was tangible a new york location In return for something that didn't even exist, a touring show.
1: However, it would later be revealed that Steve had no idea what the phrase, in perpetuity, actually meant. And no clue how much that napkin was actually worth. Heather, what does in perpetuity mean? Forever. (laughs) So no matter what happens, Nick now has the rights to any touring show that may be developed for the duration of his life, I guess. And maybe' even beyond that depending on if you will it to someone
0: yeah and for as long as Chippendales is around if they go on the road, if that show goes on the road, uh yeah, he gets the touring rights to it mm-hmm. so. and in the
1: um in the docu series, Steve's son is interviewed and said you know English was my dad's second language. he feels that Nick really took advantage of this situation knowing that his dad wouldn't have known what in perpetuity meant. There's something definitely to be said for that. I also want to know, though, why Bruce, the lawyer and one of his closest confidants, wouldn't have been at this meeting when such a huge transaction was taking place.
0: I don't know that it was necessarily Steve's indication that that dinner that they normally had would have ended up with such a huge deal happening. And I do think Steve had an ego problem. He had a, you're not going to tell me what to do problem. And while he did trust Bruce, I mean, implicitly, Bruce is the godfather of Steve's children that he and his wife have later. But so I mean, very, very, very trusted confidant with him since the beginning. You still have that shitty client syndrome where you're like, I don't need a fucking lawyer to tell me what to do. I'll sign whatever I want. As to the argument that English was Steve's second language, when you have a either uh, oral agreement or you have something like this where it's a non-traditional kind of an agreement, the, you know, say you wanted to go to court and say, is this enforceable? When we would teach this, uh, when I was uh, working at SMU, like we would teach the students, okay, the courts are going to look at the sophistication of the parties. And I do while I appreciate that English was Steve's second language, at this juncture, he was running a multi-million dollar a year business. And so the question isn't, did you understand what that word meant? The question is, in the ordinary course of business, would you ever sign a perpetual agreement with uh, somebody on a napkin without legal advice or whatever? And if that's yes, then that's how you do business and that's okay. But also you can't, say Nick Denoya, who is a sophisticated, he's been working in Broadway, he's directed shows, he understands as a a producer of a a successful Emmy-winning television show, I would say he's a sophisticated party. And on the other side, you would say this, you know, Steve Banerjee was running a million dollar business, had all these employees paying taxes, paying fines. He knew to call lawyers for things like if the fire marshal or, you know, if the alcohol authority was going to take away their alcohol license, he didn't just get a napkin and write something on, you know, he knew to call lawyers for that. And so I think a court would look at this and say, you're a sophisticated businessman. Even if you don't know every single ins and outs of what you're signing, the onus is on you to call your lawyer. And especially when the company is co-owned by an attorney, like yeah. you could have called him. He Bruce would have showed up for uh, probably a pastrami sandwich. You know what I mean? I think and you he, probably
1: should because that's yeah. your business partner. Yeah. You and I are business partners neither one of us is signing away anything on a napkin. First of all, why would we be at a meeting without the other one? Never, never. happened. But why, we would never do that without consulting one another.
0: No, 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 no. And I think that, that, again, that would point to Steve's state of mind, which is uh, I'm in charge, what I say goes. And even if Bruce was like, don't sign that, man, that's a terrible idea, which it sounds like at the time, Bruce was like, didn't even think and steve didn't even think that touring was a thing but nick with a broadway Mm -hmm. background knows how much broadway tours make and it's a shitload yeah so i i don't think this was a a swindle i don't think nick like pulled one over on him i think this was a unorthodox agreement but nevertheless it was an arm's length transaction between equally sophisticated parties yeah i agree
1: we just summed up a lot of what we think but just to keep with what we always do so what do we think
0: yeah, I think, goal. Steve, you want to see ambition, but you never want to see ambition at all costs. And good,
1: good way to say that
0: we're seeing this here that he's so ambitious to have a New York club, so ambitious not to pay Nick DeNoia anything that you let that get the better of you. And as they say in the stock market, pigs get fat and hogs get slaughtered. You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. you you know, you went you're flying too close to the sun
1: yeah. when you get too greedy That's what can happen. Everyone also that works with them said they didn't like each other. No. Like, they're like, I guess at one point they must have to get into business together, but that went away quickly and they were complete opposites. They had different ways of doing business. So when you don't even like the person that you're doing business with, and then you think, wait a second. This guy is going to start taking the credit from my club and being called Mr. Chippendales. He has this personality that I'm envious of. Things start to brew, and we already know he's capable of wanting to burn down a rival club. So when you have just kind of this pot that's just boiling and at any second is going to boil over, dot, dot, dot.
0: Yeah, you uh, again, like we said, it's ambition at all costs. And in episode two, we'll see just how far Steve was willing to go. Mm-hmm.
1: We will. Well, we will bring you that next week. And uh, in the meantime, go watch the A&E series so you can visualize all these this footage that we're talking about.
0: Better yet, if you have a strip review in your town, you should go to it. And that way, you will have experienced it in part—I'm just kidding. <laughs> Only if you want to.
1: <laughs> also, eBay, we know at least, has probably a couple more of these 1983 calendars. If you get, get were you a lady of the 80, you wish you were a lady of the 80. If you're a hot of the odds,
0: what else? Have we covered all the... heinies in the 90s. <laughs> and the queens in the teens. Oh, damn. honeys right. in the 20s. What was the last one? Honeys in the 20s. Honey's in the twenties, like the twenty twenties. We're honey's in the twenties, right now. It's like the twenty twenties, like honey's. Like, oh, that's a Does hot honey. Does honey and
1: twenty rhyme to you?
0: I'd say uh, I would call it like a slant rhyme. Yeah, Tw- like ladies and 80s doesn't rhyme. That's ladies slant 80s. Rhyme. That's
1: true. That's true. Okay. All right. Okay. Well, then we've I'll got- allow it well i will allow it i'll allow it we've got them all say your honor
0: formal uh petition
1: i, uh, I thought my gavel was within reach Well,
0: since you're a judge if you knock it count here it is
1: we Done. will all be henceforth known as all of those things heather just said we got them, and we'll brainstorm for everyone else too by next we'll week going. We love providing Sinisterhood to you at no cost, so if you like what you hear, consider supporting the show by donating to our Patreon. We're a small operation, creating the show for you by researching, writing, recording, and producing it ourselves. Any amount is sincerely appreciated and helps offset the
0: cost of making and hosting the show. As a thank you, you'll also get some sweet perks like ad-free episodes, a Sinisterhood sticker, membership to our exclusive Patreon Facebook group for those in the Rolling the Airwaves and Getting Into It tier, a special shout-out on the show a monthly bonus mini-sode. December bonus mini-sode was the Murdoch murders update, and the January one's going to be part two, because this month, the Alec Murdoch trial starts. So we're going to watch a little bit of the trial, give you some pre-trial info, and then do some analysis before the end of January. We also have patron exclusive video and audio content. Like Christy said, I have a wonderful video to upload for you all (laughs) of Christy judging the 1983 Chippendales calendar. We also have a new True Crime Headlines where we talk about the University of Idaho murders and the arrest of Brian Koberger, and we go through the probable cause affidavit and talk about what will happen next in his prosecution patrons in the getting into it tier are also able to vote on a bonus content segment each month they would like to see live streamed you're also able to vote on a full main feed episode we're going to have that voting up for you soon because after our second part of chip and dales is going to be the patreon chosen tale we've done some true crimes we have a Some interesting choices on the agenda for you for uh, something sinister, (laughs) but not criminal uh, for the the vote. So keep your eyes peeled for that.
1: You also have the fun perk of access to our Discord server, where you can connect with other fans in real time and discuss the latest in true crime, share personal ghost stories, or just post adorable pictures of your pets. We hop on occasionally and we host monthly Q&As on Crowdcast, where you can ask us all your burning questions.
0: For patrons not in the U.S., you have the option to pay in pounds or euros, saving you the cost of the conversion fee. Annual memberships for all tiers are also now available. Those that select this option will be rewarded with a free month of membership.
1: For more details on all of this and specific member tiers, visit Sinisterhood.com and click Patreon on the top banner. And make sure you stick around after our sign-offs to hear your shout out
0: So many of you have been tagging us in pictures of you supporting your sweet Sinisterhood merch. Keep those pictures coming. If you want to get some cool Sinisterhood swag like t-shirts, mugs, totes, and jeans with our faces embroidered on the back. (laughs) Just kidding. We don't have those yet. Visit Sinisterhood.com and click on shop on the top banner.
1: There's two of us. There's two pockets. I mean.
0: (laughs) I'm glad you said two pockets. I was thinking two butt cheeks. Oh,
1: yeah. Oh, yeah. Let's go for the whole cheek. I like that. Well, the best thing you can do, besides buying our jeans (laughs) will soon be up, is to like, review, and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And please tell a friend who you think would like us to check us out. You can also share any episode by clicking the three dots in the top right corner and share topic-based playlists from Spotify by visiting SinisterHood.com slash playlist. All of this means so much to us and really helps podcasts like us get more exposure.
0: You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Sinisterhood Pod and like us on Facebook at Sinisterhood. We're also on YouTube and TikTok at Sinisterhood Podcast. Christy, where are you at? I'm on Instagram at Christy M. Wallace and Twitter and TikTok at
1: Christy or GTFO. Heather?
0: I am on Twitter at MCK versus the world and I'm on Instagram and TikTok at Heather versus the world. Quick plug for the show, Instagram. The other night we posted a video of pedal snorting and it's oh. probably. It's the best. I spend a lot of time on the videos I make for the show, and none of them have ever been as good as this.
1: (laughs) It's great. Yeah. I uh, snuggled with Petal last night in the living room, and I just was laying next to her on the ground, and I was just petting her saying, Petal, do you know that you're an internet celebrity? (laughs) Everyone loves you, Petal. And then I read her comments from her video
0: (laughs) did you oh my god i was like pedal
1: everyone wants to see more content of you they love you you're such a star so i'm gonna try to post more content of her and maybe pedal becomes regular on our on the show feed
0: (laughs) we need to pick a day of the week like it's like pedal friday or like monday we'll post a picture of pedal because it's a rough week we're all gonna get the week started we need some pedal content so we'll work that out we'll work out some more regular pedal (laughs) feet content
1: well as always the devil rules the airwaves and (laughs) pedal
0: keep it creepy Hey, everybody, thank you so much for supporting the show on Patreon. Here are your special Patreon shout outs Jaslyn Murray, Charlie Jordan, Shawnee Knight, Rose Kozak, Carla
1: Toledano, Caitlin Briel, Mackenzie Donovan, Hillary, Hannah Wells, Laura Murray at F Off Mumtum, Hallie Salmi, Gabby Liliana, Stephanie Wikowski, Shelly Gonzalez, Jody Tazer, L. Lawrence, Olivia Rivieri, Minar Karchu, Aaron Martin, Haley Allen, Lindsay Griffiths, Macy Hames, Kristen Dietz, Jeanette Skies, Riley, Alexandra Waters, Abigail Kirkpatrick, Wendy O'Donnell,
0: Samantha Leanne, Heather Canonico Bridget Gilmore, Jennifer Quire, ghouls hollow podcast
1: thank you so much for supporting the show we sincerely appreciate all of you so much we hope we pronounce your names correctly thank you for doing what you do so we can do what we do stay safe stay healthy and keep it
0: creepy (laughs) sinister